Good morning. I'm excited to be able to speak to you guys again. We just got off of an interesting week, um, coming back after all the holidays, trying to get our heads back on straight, um, having meetings like, so what's been going on? Um, and just trying to get an idea of our bearings for where we're going in this new year off of last year's plan. And um, then on Thursday, we head down to Louisville um, for an awesome class on uh, family ministry. So I was not the only one that paid attention, but um, I definitely probably gained the most from that. Uh, it was exciting to be able to think through family ministry in such a different context than when I originally did um, before several years ago. Uh, however, there was people coughing everywhere, like fireworks, so I'm not entirely sure if I've come down with convention blight or not, um, but that tends to happen there. So I'm a little sweaty, uh, and not just from playing drums, um, but we're going to have fun here today, and I think they got the heaters working, so it's all going to come together at once. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Malachi. If you're not sure where that is, go to the Gospel of Matthew and turn a few pages to the left. How many of you guys were able to do your renovate us this week? Hands? Okay, no worries, because we're going to read through the entire book today. So, um, I want to encourage you guys to check out Renovate Us. Um, we have been uh, fairly consistent with that for uh, a while now. Um, less hit or miss. Um, we want to utilize that more going forward. Um, we have some more ideas for what we can do with that particularly as it pertains to your families, uh, but also as we are growing in our home gatherings and the, some of the plans that we have for home gatherings going forward. Uh, so make sure you guys take time to do that. It will almost always be up on Thursday or Friday at the latest. Um, we're trying to talk about it a little bit in home gatherings on Tuesdays and Wednesdays just to give you an idea of what's coming. Um, so make sure you guys are getting into that because uh, it would be very valuable if you come today prepared already knowing what the text says, having dwelled on a little bit, looking for themes, making observations about what the text says, what Malachi is trying to communicate to us. Um, but let's, um, let's start with just, today is going to be an overview of the entire book. Um, our goal is over the course of probably at least 10 years um, to eventually come to a point where we have a one or maybe two sermon overview of every book of the Bible uh, that we can access through our podcasts, and you can jump on there. I want to know what Jude is about. So look it up, and there's Jude. We haven't done Jude yet, so we have to wait for that. Um, but we want to try to hit every book. So today is going to be an overview of all four chapters, which is a little obviously different than what we normally do. Um, but we're going to go through quite a bit together as we work through this. So let's talk about what is Malachi. Um, Malachi, can the word can be translated potentially my messenger, so there's been some debate whether or not that the person who wrote this book was actually named Malachi. Uh, but what's weird is that in all the other tradition, particularly of the minor prophets even, but also most of the major prophets in the Old Testament, all the books are named after the person who wrote it. You have Nehemiah, you have Amos, you have Jonah, you have um, Nahum, you have uh, a bunch of different individual authors who write the books. And then so to come here and say that, it well, it must be messenger, just because the name doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible, it's a little bit of a stretch, it seems. Uh, so I am under the impression, at least, that the person who wrote Malachi is named Malachi. Um, works for me. It, it makes sense that he's saying, I am the one bringing you the word, and just like all the other prophets, he names himself. 
Uh, this was written in the 5th century B.C. You'll notice that it is the last book in our Old Testament canon. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was... Um, if you look at a chronological Bible, it's going to rearrange some different things. Uh, so in order to place when this happened, when this happened was actually when some of the other books were being written. So it's kind of simultaneous. However, when it was actually penned and inserted into the canon, it is our last revelation, our last words from God before the New Testament comes. So what makes this super interesting is because this is the last words of God before Jesus comes, what does God have to say? If you look at the dating for this in the 5th century B.C., 433 to 424 B.C., when was Jesus born? Right around 3 B.C. So there's 400 years of silence after this book was given. After this prophet named Malachi brought the word from the Lord to Israel, there was 400 years of silence. And just to give you some perspective, when was the Constitution and the, well, I guess more likely the Declaration of Independence written? 1700s. So it's been about 250 years at most of America being here. Imagine not hearing from God the entire time. The 400 years of silence is something that we have to take into account. The intertestamental period is a large span of time. It is one of the largest spans that God has not spoken in the entire Bible. And so what are his last words for us? And that's what we want to come to today. So just to give you some more background, if you're looking at Malachi, the time period of where Israel's at, the sacrifices had resumed at the temple. They're back from their exile. They're back in their homeland. The sacrifices has resumed at the temple. It's a practice that was restarted by Ezra and Nehemiah. If you want some more information about this time period, check out those two prophets. It was after the exiled Jews returned to their homeland. Malachi is prophesying here several years after this happened, after they had restarted the sacrifice. So apparently as those years had gone by, both the priests and the people had forgotten the significance behind the sacrificial system that they were adhering to. So if you look at Leviticus, Leviticus is enormous in its rules. A lot of times people will start Bible reading plans for the new year. I don't know if you started that this year. Uh, and they do pretty good through Genesis. As soon as they hit Leviticus, they're like, I don't know if this is for me. Um, and then you hit Numbers, and you're like, I don't know if this is for me. Um, it gets tough to read through some of the Levitical laws, uh, but the sacrificial system, just the rules for living that Jesus or God uh, gives us in the Old Testament, particularly in the Torah. So a lot of times people will skip those books entirely, and you're missing out on some awesome stories, first of all. Uh, but they just jump kind of to the New Testament, which is fine. Um, but I want to make sure that we are giving the Old Testament its due. Um, there is so much here for us as we remember last week uh, when Jesus had resurrected and he's walking with the two uh, strangers on the road to Emos. And he stops and he says, let me explain to you all of the scriptures that were about me. So two things I want you to do today as we're looking at Malachi. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? How do the scriptures attest to him? And the second thing I want you to do is look for the aspects of kingdom. Look for the aspects of kingdom. There's going to be some that are present, and there's going to be some that are missing. So if you remember back to our Kingdom and Covenant series, the kingdom 
concept, that biblical theology that we can trace all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is God's people in God's place under God's rule and then his subsequent blessing, or if they're not under his rule, under his curse. When we look at a covenant, there's two outcomes, blessing or cursing. There's no middle ground. And so when we're looking through Malachi, we're looking through this idea of kingdom because Christ, where is Christ, fits into our different uh, kingdom ages. If you are new today, you're getting a lot of extra context. I'm sorry. Um, this is for our members that have been trying to trace kingdom. Uh, so just hang on with me. We'll get into the text. Uh, you're looking for Christ in the kingdom structure, right? So God's people, or the Israelites, in God's place, ideally in the promised land, right? Under God's rule, his covenant. Are they in the covenant or are they out of the covenant? That's what I want you to be looking for today. So when we look at how Malachi responds to them, we find that their religious actions had become a checklist rather than something that they did in loving obedience. They saw these actions as a kind of permission slip to live as they pleased because, after all, God would forgive them for anything if they just offered the sacrifice. We're going to see extremely explicit uh, deviation from the covenant, from the sacrifice system, from an understanding of the work of the atonement. And so, as you maybe heard some of this intro stuff, it's, if you read it, if you read Malachi, uh, you'll see that he talks about the priests a lot. Like, one of the main subjects is how much the priests are doing wrong. Another thing you'll probably see is the idea of sacrifices, so we're talking about them being back at the temple. The sacrifice system has started again. Why does this matter for us? Why does Malachi matter for us today? We, have, we don't have priests in the sense of, of the Israelites' age. I mean, you have elders, you have pastors. Um, we're not functioning as the priests that you see here. We don't bring your sacrifice to the altar to make atonement for sins. Uh, we simply proclaim the word and lead the sheep. And we don't have sacrifices in general. I mean, we've not killed an animal since we've been here. It's been four years now, so either we have a lot of sin to atone for. Um, we don't do that. And we certainly don't have any ongoing prophecy. We don't have somebody coming into our building say, I have received a word from the Lord. This is canon. Let's put it down on paper and abide by it forever. We don't have that. And certainly we hear from God and, and, and senses as he directs our lives, as we speak into each other's life and rebuke and correction, but that all comes back from the already written and revealed word. There's no new revelation for us. So why Malachi? Well, again, last week we saw that all scripture attests of Christ. We see kingdom thread all the way through. But more importantly, we find in a New Testament ecclesiology, in, this, in the structure of the church, when we look at what the church is made up of, particularly of believers, we find that the priesthood has changed. We find that the priesthood of the Old Testament has changed in a major fashion when we look at the work of Christ. So after we exit Luke, like we did just last week, there's something new happening. The structure of old is different. Because of the work on the cross and the resurrection of Christ, something new happens with the priest. The atonement has been Made And as Matt read earlier, and I'm just going to point out again, if you look at Hebrews chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, keep going. You see so much about the priesthood changing, and particularly when we see Christ as the high priest. Christ is the new high priest. He is our advocate to God. 
No longer do we have to have an entire tribe of, of Levites standing between us and God that we bring our offerings to, we bring our prayers to, we bring everything to this intermediary man so that he can go to God on our behalf. And we no longer have to do that. We, because of Christ, have direct access to the throne. When we have our troubles, when we have our concerns, when we have our honor, when we have our love, we give that directly to Christ. And Christ is our perfect mediator. But when we look at the Holy Spirit's role in all this, we have God on the throne, we have Jesus as our mediator. Where's the Holy Spirit fall? The Holy Spirit resides in the lives and the hearts of believers. So as we become the temple, a temple needs a priest. We are the new priesthood. When you look at Peter, he explains how we are a chosen people, a holy race, and the new priesthood. We are now all priests. So what does that mean for us in Malachi? This is all for believers, every bit of it. There is a section in here where he's particularly talking about Israel as a whole, including the lay people, if you will. This book is not for me and Matt only. This is not just a section of it for you guys. The entire thing is for us today. Now, the challenge is drawing some of these implications from a system that doesn't exist anymore into our current lives. So we're going to walk through this together. But before we do, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5-6. through He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That needs to be the lens that we approach Malachi with, okay? Christ is our mediator. He is what allows us to approach the scripture as the priesthood. So the first thing on your notes says a forgotten God. Forgotten God. Let's read together. Malachi chapter 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So very briefly, just his introduction here is, is interesting. This is a new word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. It's not Malachi's ideas. It's not his words. The idea is that he is moved by the Spirit to record or really to proclaim these words. And so he is simply the intermediary at this time of bringing God's word to the people. And it starts with this exchange. There's a question and answer type thing here in Malachi that I absolutely love because just as we were in Luke it's so easy to hear the stories of, of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and then in our minds as we're reading we're you know we're behind Jesus like yeah Jesus Pharisees stuck ah. you got your sign like at a football game like Pharisees stink um, we keep doing that of being on Jesus' side and it's so easy to just to just put us there and leave it and like yep Jesus is right next story I'm with Jesus he's right those guys are dumb and, and, and as we discovered in Home Gathering, trying to put ourselves on the other side, 
of being the one who questions, being the one who betrays, being the one who rejects, being the one who is too blind to see is a difficult task. To, to break our pride and to put ourselves on the other side against a holy God is a difficult thing. But when we look in Paul's letters, he talks about how we were enemies of God. We were aliens to the covenant of grace. And so our primary position when reading and going to Scripture should be on the offensive side. We are against Jesus. And as we enter into this conversation that Malachi builds with, this, with God asking or, or saying things and then the people questioning and, and response, we have to put ourselves on the side of the response. So as we read this, he says, I've loved you, says the Lord, and, and we ask, you ask, we ask, how have you loved us? I understand that all of these questions are not investigative, okay? They don't really want to know. It's a very sarcastic, um, blasé response. It's just, how have you loved us? And so when we approach it from that understanding, I think you're going to see some of the depth of the depravity from which the Israelites have succumbed to. And it's going to make it much more real when you see the rejection then of God and His covenant. He says, I have loved you. And we say, how have you loved us? It wasn't Esau, Jacob's brother. This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What's significant about that? We've got a lot to cover today, so I'm going to be moving. What's significant about this? Esau was supposed to get the blessing of Isaac. But Jacob, the trickster, covered himself in fur and brought soup to his dad, who was blind, and tricked him into giving him the blessing. Now, even though he was deceptive in that, that is the line then of Christ. That is the line then of the Israelites. And Esau was cast out. And the country of Edom or the nation of Edom or the Edomites, uh, the red-haired people, um, are cast out. And he continues to say in here, I've loved Jacob. I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland. I gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. But Edom says to me, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, that's fine. They may build, but I will demolish them again. They'll be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. God wants the Israelites to understand that not only is he not against them, but he is for them. They are the only people in the world that he is for. It would be good enough for God to not be against them as he is against the Edomites. But he's saying, no, 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 not am I not only against you, we're not neutral, I love you. I take care of you. You are my people. I have covenanted with you. So it's so much beyond neutral. And that, that's, that's where he's starting from. I care about you. And he says, of course, of himself, the Lord is great. Now, certainly if you're the Edomites, you would say, yes, the Lord is to be feared because he can destroy and has destroyed all of our stuff. He is a mighty, powerful God. And so if you're the Edomites and you see that Israel is not getting attacked, that's awesome. I mean, I wish I was them. But then to see God blessing them, that takes a whole different spin on the Lord is great. So let's move into the main text. If that's our foundation, that God is supposed to be and is for the Israelites and loves them and has covenant relationship with them 
where are, where, where's Israel? <laughs> what are they doing? So we jump into verse 6. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my fear? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you? Oh, that you were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire and my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. And the first subpoint under the forgotten God is that we do not honor as father. They do not honor him as father. They've forgotten God as their father. He's clearly begun here with his introduction of telling them that they are loved. And they've forgotten to honor him as their father. You see, Yahweh has acted in covenant love. If you remember back to Hosea, we talked about covenants a lot. About the blessing and cursing that follows with them. That, that's the outcome. But what about the maintaining? You see, if they don't act in obedience, then curse follows. If they do, then blessing follows. But who enabled them to keep the covenant? God. God enabled the covenant. And so if, if we're going to approach this correctly today, you're going to have to work your brains and think all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. If you're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, the main purpose of it, at least for us, is that the line of Christ is through Abraham, right? And then a second, that Abraham is going to have all of these descendants that, what, number the more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky, right? That's supposed to happen. They're supposed to have a Messiah through Christ. Okay, so what happens then when you get to really the end of the Israelites' rope? They've been in exile twice. They've returned. And they're saying, surely this, <laughs> this is a joke. Where's this covenant? Where's this covenant that, that God is supposed to have, have done? And so they're at the end of the rope, and they forget God. They don't honor him as father. They don't show love to him. Understanding all along that Yahweh is the one who's acted in covenant love every step. He's the one that established it, and he's the one that maintains it. Even so much as after they had broken it repeatedly and been exiled, he doesn't leave it there. He remembers his covenant and in and of himself holds that covenant true and brings them back out of exile into their homeland so that they can be his people again. So again, you have God's people in God's place. Now the question is, are they under his rule? And so when we look at verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor. You bring me lame, sick, polluted, blind. You bring me all these animals that are awful. They're absolutely awful. And you seek to honor me 
in that. And not only that, after you do that, then you seek grace from me. You look for God's favor upon you. Take those animals and give them to your governor and see what kind of favor he gives you. See what kind of honor you're giving him. So the struggle for us today is if we are all priests in the new covenant, what are we bringing to the altar? Now the danger today, and what I want to keep saying, is that we need to give God our best, right? That should be the easy mantra to say today. Let's give God our best. We need to give God our best in everything. We sacrifice the best and give it to him. But there's going to be a recurring problem in this covenant as we talk through today, and that we can't bring our best all the time. We can't really bring this covenant to fruition. Just like before, the entire purpose of the law and the covenant was to say, you can't be good enough. You need an animal to atone for your sins for a time. And ultimately, one day you need a perfect sacrifice to atone for your sins for all time. We still today need that perfect sacrifice. We cannot maintain this covenant on our own. So it's not simply enough to say, give God your best. Well, certainly that needs to be an implication of what we do, and we are going to talk about that a lot, but it, that's not good enough. Understand that our best is not good enough. I hope you saw that today in our worship time. Our best is not enough. Nonetheless, if we're going to honor God as Father, then we need to give Him the very best of what we have. Well, certainly a governor would not take a lame animal. They would probably be chastised and punished for even trying to offer them something so offensive. That God is saying, why would I take it if your governor will not? Why do you honor man above God? Next thing you see in verse 6, it says, if I'm a master, where's my fear? The second point is, do not, they do not fear him as master. Do not fear him as master. Coming out of verse 10 where God is saying, I wish somebody would shut the doors and you guys would quit sacrificing anything on my altar because it's so offensive. We run into verse 11. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every, in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering given. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Again, the Israelites are bringing sacrifices that are blemished. They are not bringing the spotless lamb. You see, the Levitical law, when it calls for sacrifice, calls for the best of the flock, the first fruits. So if someone has lambs, a flock of lambs, I don't know the plurals on that, um, they don't just bring the the one whose wool is kind of matty and it's off color and they sacrifice that one. We're giving it to God. I mean, it's one of mine. I've only got a hundred and I sacrifice one. I mean, that's it's still a sacrifice, right? I could use that animal for something. 
Uh, no, they were supposed to bring the very, 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 very best lamb to the altar. You don't bring one that's crippled. You don't bring one that's sick. You don't bring one that has... You bring the best. You bring the best. But of course, if you don't fear God, if you scoff at Him and snort at it and say, what a weariness this is, certainly you're not going to be worried about bringing the best. You're going to offer what you feel is worthy. And so... What are some implications for us out of just this first text today? Again, try to try to balance in your brain things that are required of us versus things that we can actually do, for lack of better words. Again, we cannot maintain this covenant on our own. It, it won't happen. Nonetheless, there are things that are required of us. And so if we're going to honor God as Father, if we're going to fear Him as Master, giving honor and love at the same time knowing that he is great and mighty, we're going to do everything that he says for fear of justice. We're going to do everything that he says for fear of punishment. We're also going to do it now in the New Covenant, particularly because of the great work of Christ on the cross. Just as a child should obey its parents out of love and honor because of everything that's been given, everything that's been provided, all of that that goes into obedience, we should obey our Heavenly Father. It's not that He will smite us if we don't. It's such a short-sighted view of, of, of God. To, to look at the covenant system and the fact that He maintains all of it for us, and then to say, I'm just afraid He's going to punish me, misses so much behind it. I'm not saying that God is only love and we should not repent of sin. We look at our sin and we say, how offensive to a holy, perfect God. And how arrogant to a loving, gracious father. It's the father who offers you $20 on a Friday night, and you take it as if you deserve it. You don't bring them change, right? I mean, we've all been there. We need to understand that the implications for us is that we bring God our best. But the problem is, is we want to snort often, and it's not in a direct opposition to God. But it's Sunday morning when you show up for roadie crew, and you don't want to be here. It's Sunday morning when you show up here for band practice and you feel really sick and you have to play drums anyways and it feels like you're running. Um, <laughs> we have to give God, our, give God our best. Understand that he is the perfect sacrifice. He perfects our work, but we are obedient and we give him the best that we have. Let's move on into chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a broken priesthood. A broken priesthood. Now again, a reminder, this is for all believers. You are all priests now. It says in verse 1, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I already have cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi, the original Levites and priests, may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. 
and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned to many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. There's a lot going on in chapter 2. But the first thing I think we can look at was a blemished offering. A blemished offering. We've already mentioned this a little bit in uh, chapter 1, but particularly when we're looking to the priests. Looking to the priests as being the ones who are supposed to be the officiants of the covenant. So in chapter 1... We see him really instructing both the priests, but also the people. We're talking about the people in general. And as we jump into chapter 2, he's specifically talking about the priesthood. And so he gives us some comparisons between Levi, who's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the original tribes of Israel, and the Levites, the people of Levi, were supposed to be the priests. So when you have all 12, one entire tribe was meant to be the priests, or the officiants of the covenant between man and God. And so they have instruction. That's what Leviticus is. When we look at Leviticus, we see everything that is outlined with the sacrifices. So it's one thing for the people to be a base and, and bring blemished offerings. It's one thing for that to happen. It's an entirely another thing for the priest to accept it, for the priest to take that offering and then even offer it. You see, they bring their sacrifice to the priest and the priest then turn around and give that to God. So when he goes after the priesthood here, we see a blemished offering. We understand that a perfect sacrifice was required. And this isn't something that we can just go, oh, well, they're supposed to bring the best. I've got to give God my best. Understand what the sacrifice points to very, very, very specifically. The sacrifice is an exact type of the coming Christ. So if we're talking about what God requires... And then we just kind of say, well, yeah, give the best. I've got to give my best to God. Duh. It's not that. If you do that, then we look at Christ and we go, he was really good. Awesome. 
I need to be like Christ. I need to be really good. And it's so much, so much more than that. To understand that the, the depth of what it means to be a perfect sacrifice should bring a new, um, new instruction, new perspective to the way that we live our lives. It's not just I give God the first fruits. It's not just I give God the best. I give God the best. I give God the first fruits because he gave me his only son. He gave me a perfect, spotless, innocent lamb. I am guilty. I certainly need to give God my best. Jesus was innocent. So when we look at the sacrifice and the, the importance of that, you can trace it throughout the Old, Old Testament. I was talking even last week about the priest who goes in with the bells on his garment and the rope tied around his leg. In case the offering was rejected, the priest would die. He would drop dead. The bells would no longer jingle, and they would pull him out because if they went in, they would die in the presence of the Lord. And now the Israelites are here, and they're scoffing. They're giving blemished offerings. They do not fear God. And so we see, secondly, a corrupted covenant. A corrupted covenant. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Then you will know that I sent you this decree, so my covenant with Levi may continue. God instituted the covenant, and he has no, no mind to change it. There's nothing wrong with that covenant. Christ will bring the better covenant. But right now, we don't have Christ. This is the covenant that will remain. It says, My covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him, and it called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. And so the two pieces that are really missing in the priesthood is first, true instruction. True instruction is necessary. In verse 6 of chapter 2, it says, True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found in his lips verse 7 for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the lord of hosts are you a messenger of the lord of hosts is true instruction coming from your mouth do the words of god sit on your lips it's an easy easy application for us today we're looking at being the priesthood of God, the new priesthood and the new covenant versus the old. What is a priest supposed to do? And see, the Israelites were not. Is verse 8 true of you? Well, I pray it's not. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi. So when we don't maintain covenant obedience, curse follows. If you do, blessing follows. But if you don't, verse 9. So I, God, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instructions. We need to be known for giving true instruction. The second thing is upright living. Upright living, or is your life blameless? Can people look to you and say that is a person who's living in righteousness? Back in verse 6, it says, He walked with me in peace and fairness and turned many from sin.
See, in the way that we live, are we living in covenant obedience? And people look to us and say, that person is maintaining God's covenant. Now, for us in a new covenant understanding, we look back to Paul, and particularly when we look at his one another's. Are you living with all the one another's? If you are bored or more interested, I'm hoping it's more interested, um, go to your computer or go to your phone, go to BibleGateway.com, org or whatever it is, Google Bible Gateway, it'll take you to the right one because I can't remember. Um, all I have to do is type BI and it works. Um, type in one another and look at the search results. Are you doing those things? More importantly, as we jump into 1 John, um, you will be known by your love for one another. That's upright living. That is someone who exemplifies the covenant God has required. And so a broken priesthood in chapter 2 um, is, is a mess. Okay? The priests are supposed to be the ones leading the people. And so they are held doubly accountable for what they have taught. They are misleading the Israelites. So it's no wonder the Israelites in, verse, or in chapter 1 are behaving the way that they are. It's no wonder when we get to chapter 3 here that they are doing horrible things because the priests are not leading. There's no true instruction coming out. They are misleading people, and they are not walking in the ways of righteousness. And we see this even more so when we jump into uh, verse 10 and finish out the rest of that chapter that we've already read. But if you look in verse 10 um, through 16 of chapter 2, it talks about Judah committing adultery, about leaving his wife of his youth. What this is talking about is before they, they went into exile, the Israelites were in two different nations. Uh, if you remember, Judah was the southern nation. It was just the tribe of Judah. All the other ones were in Israel, the northern kingdom. So if you have your documents still from Kingdom and Covenant, you can go back and look at how, that, how they moved and who the different kings were. But there were really two nations involving all of God's people. They went to exile. And when they came back, they're still a little fractured. And Judah particularly is called out here for having left his wife of his youth. They've married daughters of a foreign god. This is a little bit of wordplay, but also pretty explicit in and of itself. Um, he's not just trying to create an analogy here. <laughs> it's not just Judah leaving God and adopting other gods. That is probably the main primary part of it. But they are literally marrying other women from Babylon, from Assyria. And they bring those wives back with them into the promised land, God's people in God's place. And now they are brought into other gods. And he says something very, very sad here. When that covenant relationship was broken and they have left God in the literal sense, and then even in the, the physical sense where they married another god, they have been cast out. They are no longer allowed to be part of Israel. They're taken from the tents of Judah and removed from God's kingdom. So no, they are no longer God's people. They may be in God's place, but they're not his people. So we jump into verse 17 of chapter 2. This really does fit with chapter 3. That's why we jump it down here. So the last thing is a wayward people. A wayward people. Now, you probably could have guessed this from everything that we've already done. But here we go into most of the um, the people themselves, not just the priests. But the first way that they are wayward, they are doubting justice. They are doubting God's justice. Some sad words in verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
yet you ask. It's not and you ask, or then you ask, it's yet. <laughs> I'm tired of you talking, and we continue to talk. Uh, that's that's kind of how it, it flows here. You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you continue and ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Can you imagine Matt, myself getting up here and saying, God is pleased when you sin. I should not be here next week, okay? If that ever comes out of our mouth, we're done. The people are saying everyone who does what is evil is good. They're good people for doing what is evil. And God's pleased with them. No wonder they can't sacrifice correctly. They don't believe that they need forgiveness. How does that translate to today? People are basically good. I don't need a Savior because I've done nothing wrong. I don't need to worry about sin because God will accept me for being a good person. We hear this everywhere in our culture. Everywhere in our culture. Good and evil is a relative term. It's subjective to one's experience. We're no longer held accountable for our actions, our beliefs, or our thoughts. And God will love me simply because he's a God of love. Chapter 3, he says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a cleansing lie. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days gone by. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So, it's one thing, and I think I can understand where they're coming from, because again, it's easy to say, well, why would they doubt God's justice? I mean, one of the aspects of God, if we're looking at the characteristics of who God is, is the fact that he is just. He is perfectly just in everything that he does. And so it's easy to say, well, I know God. I know he's just. He's just not just yet. Well, why is he not just yet? Why? Where's justice for all these people doing evil? And so a generation of Israelites comes out of exile into their homeland, back under the covenant instructions of God and the Torah. They had the instruction of the Torah. And so when they're looking at this, if we put ourselves on their side and are honest with ourselves, could we not today have these same accusations of God? God, if you are just, why is all this evil happening? Why do the people who cheat workers, why do the people who oppressed people have so much money why are the people who are in Washington in Washington on all levels why do those with power 
have so much power over us in a sense that it's wrong. And you can take whatever popular issue you want, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be marriage in general, whether it be wages, whether it be family values, whatever it is, why is all this going on without you doing anything about it? And it would make sense then to say, following that train of thought, those who do that must be blessed because there's nothing stopping them. They're happy. They're getting what they want. So yeah, let's, let's do what we want to do. God must approve of it. Good things come to them. Money, success, fame, relationships, sex, power. All of a sudden, it's not so hard to stand on their side when we look at Malachi. Where's the justice of God? If you're not a believer, I don't blame you for thinking that. If you are a believer, I think we need to be honest with ourselves and say that that's a very real possible understanding of the events. Now, what's the foundational key of a believer when we approach life? You see, if you approach everything that I just talked about from a secular worldview, you certainly will end up in that conclusion. We should not be surprised when people on Facebook, on the news, in our jobs, in our schools, have that feeling. It makes perfect sense from a secular worldview. But the foundational transformation that comes with Christ in a believer's heart is going to a biblical world view. It's all about how you filter those events. And so when I filter those events from a biblical worldview, and I look at the process that we have of gay marriage, it makes sense to me that it happens here. Jesus says that he'll give us the desires of our heart, and he'll turn us over to those destructive desires. That prayer that we read earlier today, talking about, thank God you have not given me the desires of my heart. Thank you for protecting me from myself. You see, when you start from a worldview that says we are basically good, then we will end up where that is. If we start from a worldview that says we are basically evil, we're going to have a different outcome. And so when we start with a worldview of we are basically evil, we understand that we need a Savior. And that while justice has not seemed to come from our perspective yet, People are being judged every day by the consequences of their actions. So if we look at a homosexual worldview, they're inviting disaster upon themselves. They're sinning against themselves. Any sexual sin is a sin against the body, whether it's homosexuality, sex before marriage, or even lust. Those are actions against the body. You're inviting consequence and disaster to yourself then. That is the justice of God. But he always talks about being further in justice. So while there are consequences now for our actions, if I'm caught in a lie, people will not trust me anymore. I lose the power that I perceived to have had. If I lie to people and am evil, I can gain power until I'm found out. And what happens to my power? It's gone. So with the right perspective, sure, you can end up wherever you want to. From a biblical perspective, it stands on truth. It ends. Anything that is of me ends. And so they're saying, where's the justice of God? Well, justice is coming. We should thank God that he's not judging us now. That he is not so just that he does it right now. Because we think that we're basically good. The Israelites thought that they were basically good. When they come back into the land of God, they're saying, we can do this thing. We don't have to 
I don't need a perfect sacrifice because I'm not evil. There's nothing to atone for because I'm good. What happens if God judges them right then? Are they as good as they think they are? No. What happens if God judges me right now? Am I as good as I think I am? No. Praise God, he's not judging me yet. If you're not a believer today, praise God, he's not judging you yet. If God were to judge me today, he would find me believing in his son. And that's the only reason that I am good at all, because I have the righteousness of God given to me. That is the gospel in essence. When you run into chapter 3 here, in a book of the Old Testament that's so far apart from the New Testament, we find the gospel right here in verse 3. One day I'm sending my messenger, and he will clear the way for me. Then the Lord will seek, you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant of desire. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? He will refine with fire. He will purify silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, and those offerings will please the Lord as in the days gone by. That person who's coming is Christ. That justice that is coming is his final judgment. And in the meantime, we have the opportunity to seek God as much as we can, hoping and praying that he will draw us to himself to belief and faith in him, and we will find ourselves sons and daughters of the king. Those who were once enemies of God are now not only friends, but family, adopted sons. That way, when judgment does come, this justice that they so long for, that they are absolutely not prepared for, when that justice does come, they will not be found wanting. And so if we doubt the justice of God, then I think we can easily jump into the second part of this, robbing God. Robbing God. You say, oh no, here comes the preacher with money. Nope. Rusty has no money. Uh, but also, too, um, this is what's here. So, here we go. Uh, verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I, I want to stop here. Verse 7 is huge in understanding Malachi. This is not one or two people. This is not just a tribe. This is Everybody. And it's not just a little bit. It's from the days of their fathers. They have been acting like this since they came back into the land. Return to me and I will return to you. It sounds exactly like Hosea. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? And your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? And then you have said, it is vain to serve God. <laughs> what is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of ours 
walking in, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I don't, I don't even want to talk about 13 and 15. That's the arrogance with which they're approaching them. So why does money all of a sudden enter in? Because as we see in the New Testament, where your treasure is or your heart is also, Jesus talks about money more than anything else in the entire New Testament, particularly the Gospels when he's speaking. Um, we're going to talk a lot about this at the end of the month in the finance class. Uh, so I don't want to overbear this section. Um, I simply want to try to treat the text, and we'll save some of those other implications and stuff for that class. I want to encourage you guys to be there. You can begin signing up for that today or this afternoon. Um, but let's, let's look at here. It, it's no surprise to me that when they can't even offer a good offering, then they can't even give of their finances, where their heart is, the thing that sustains them. They're not giving that to God. I'm a shocker. And so when we get into verse 6, he says, I don't change, and because of that, you guys are not consumed. Even though you've changed, in verse 7, I don't change. Return to me, and I will return to you. And you say, well, how, how do we return to you? And he doesn't just say what to do. He, he asks them a question. He says, and if you look at the, at the Hebrew, the will a man rob God it is actually a plural lowercase. It's God's. Um, now, if we put that into here in our translation, it would confuse a lot of people uh, for God to say, will you rob God's? Um, so for our easy understanding, it just says, would you rob God, me? Uh, of course, the answer is no. And the, the greater question, if you look at the Hebrew, is particularly, will man rob God's? If you have God's, just like you have governors earlier in chapter 1, would you rob the gods? And the answer is certainly no. We wouldn't rob our governor, a man. Why would we rob God, a god? He says, not, not I am sorry, I repent immediately, but how have we robbed you? And he answers back, in your tithes and in your contributions. Now understand that the word tithe is, is, comes from the root word of a tenth, basically, a tenth of your... Uh, so your first fruits, the first remaining uh, piece of your crop, uh, that's the best. You give the top 10%, the best. Uh, a better understanding in Hebrew of the tithes is the payment of the tenth. That literally would translate into a payment of the tenth. So we have to do a little bit of perspective shifting here. Um, <laughs> some people talk about how they don't want to have to give 10%. That seems legalistic. It's fine with me. Give 11, 12, 13, don't care. Um, give the tenth. If you want to be, if you feel like it's legalistic, give more. Um, the key here is it's a payment of the tenth. And, and with money, that's the only thing that we will often say, well, it just feels like legalism. It feels like a checklist just to, to give 10%. And we try to then pull church and serving into that stuff. You remember Luke chapter 17? What does the servant not say to the master? He does not say, look at all I have done. He simply says, I am a good-for-nothing servant. I have simply done my duty. I've done what's required of me. And that is what allows him to be obedient and remain in relationship, good standing with the master. He doesn't deserve anything extra. He doesn't get more because he did what was expected. You don't give your son an extra treat because he cleaned the floor correctly. He's supposed to clean the floor correctly. You punish him if he doesn't. And so when we enter into this, when it comes to money, it, it's a payment of the tenth. Our tithe, our ten percent, should be treated as a payment. Why? Because it aids in fearing God. It honors God. It's an obedience issue. 
If you want to do it with a grateful heart, I'm sure that will come. But nonetheless, it's a payment. It is a giving of what we have to God. If we are required to give everything else to Him, why when it comes to money, can it not be a payment? Why does it have to be, well, this is mine. Here you go, God. It's an understanding that it's all His. We're paying Him 10%. It's His money. But it's not just that. He says then in the contributions or offerings, um, this is something beyond the tenth. The payments of the tenth is the payment. That is an act of worship and honor and obedience just like anything else that we do. Just like it is for to play drums, to, to lead in singing, to run a board, to teach in a home gathering, just like it is in any other service. That is an act of service. The payment of the tenth, the offering is where all that joy that we see is supposed to come in, a joyful giver, God loves a joyful heart. That comes in the offering, and those are beyond the ten. And he says, you are robbing me. Bring the full tithe. The word full is there because some people were bringing two, five, eight percent. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That means the church. You do not have the option to give your tithe to any other ministry other than the church. You do not have that option. You have an option to give your offerings to anything else. Ideally, it would be, again, through the church, and you trust the church where your life is at to help minister to the people that you are involved with. But bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. This is the only time in Scripture you see that we're allowed to test God. Only time. Because what is his response to Satan? Do not test the Lord your God. This is the only time that we're invited to test God. It says, test me in this. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So briefly, if we're following our text through here, because this is going to take a different approach than our finance class, if we're looking at people who doubt justice, who rob God, who are wayward in offering the blemished sacrifice, and people who are not trusting God, then when it comes to the giving of the tenth, the payment of the tenth, they do not fear God. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, I will raise mine, because I'm talking about me, have not tithed because you're more afraid of the credit company than you are God? I'm more afraid of my governor, so I give him my unblemished sacrifice, and I bring the lame one to God. I fear man more than I fear God. I honor man more than I honor God. Same can be true for rent. It can be true for electric. It can be true for food. It can be true for anything. We don't honor God first. It is called the first fruits for a reason. It should be paid before anything else is even considered. The danger just like me, is that we can fear man more than we fear God. And we bring the full tithe so that the house may have food. You see, the priests, in this case, are entirely taken care of by the tenth that is brought. The people that need help are taken care of primarily through the offerings that are brought on the side, but also through a percentage of what is brought in the tenth. There's no food in God's house to be given because people are buying food for themselves with God's money. And so the danger then for us in the, uh, the age of the church is 
Maybe the church can't help you with your bill because you've been using the church's money to pay your bills for the past five months. See, if you owe $100 in the payment of the tenth to God, and you give 50, and then you are using 50 for the, you're using the church's money. Now, a disclaimer, most of the money that's going to go into the church for you guys' tenth, this is an awkward topic for me to talk about, does not go to my pocket, okay? There are people in our church that need help that we can't help because there's no food in the house. The storehouses are not full. Now, in the finance class, we're going to kind of, and I'm not going to get individual numbers, but we're going to get ballpark figures of everyone who's there and see what the tenth would be. I mean, I I hate to say it, but when we look at what the storehouse could do for the kingdom of God versus paying our bills because we can't budget or because we fear man more than God, I think we're going to see a priesthood who's not giving true instruction and who's not living in an upright way. See, I've been dwelling on Malachi for a little while here, and it's not fun. Um, It hurts. Uh, To see the moments that I fear man more than I fear God, to see that I have to be a priest at all times who has... God's word on my mouth, who's living in an upright way. It was a tough, tough thing to do. Well, I think that brings us then to the end of this book. There's a future hope because I can't do that. It's a future hope. I, I fear man often more than I fear God. The words of God are not always on my lips. I do not always live in an upright way. I do not always process life in a biblical worldview I doubt the justice of God I doubt many things of God I doubt his provision I doubt, I doubt his, his providence I doubt his love I can't, I can't do this I can't do this and so I hope I find myself in some of the hope that's found in verse 13 of chapter 3 through the end of the book, but I also need to heed the warning. Understand, these are the closing words of God before he brings Jesus on the scene. It's 400 years of silence after this, and this is what they have to hang on to. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That verse is, is your entire application for today, okay? You've heard everything that God said through Malachi. Would he be writing your name down now after you've heard the words of the Lord? They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts.
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 400 years of silence. So what do we do with the words of God? What do we do with the words of God? We see that justice will come in chapter 4. It's very clear. Um, They may doubt him at the beginning of chapter 3, but justice is coming. More importantly, in verse 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. You guys have not been doing that. You need to remember the law of Moses. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him. And then finally, verse 5. I will send you Elijah. He's not talking about Elijah. Okay, Elijah is a type for them. It makes sense to them. They understand who Elijah is. So he's saying, I will send Elijah, a man who was a great prophet, did great things, did everything that he gets ready to say. But who is the new Elijah? Who's the new Adam? It's Christ. I will send you Christ before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I would come and strike down the land with utter destruction. Christ is coming. He will be the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect priest. He is the one mediator between man and God. We can approach the throne with confidence because we have Christ, the perfect mediator. Well, that is the book of Malachi, and the question is whether or not we will be found in verse 16 of chapter 3. What are you going to do with the words of God? Let's take some time to pray together, uh, and then we will sing one last song together, uh, proclaiming the name of our great and powerful God, and we can fear him as he is worthy to be feared and honor him as a father who is wonderful. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, Father, your forbearance, that you are not judging us yet before the appropriate time. Father, that we have time to repent. Father, we have time to hear your words. Father, we have time to turn from our sin. Father, that we have an opportunity to experience your grace. And Father, we have an opportunity to build your kingdom. Not just be prepared for a day of judgment, but Father, that we can live as your people in your place under your rule, and Father, experience your blessing. And God, we can be in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ, and being able to see who he is in the Old Testament, being able to see his traces all the way even through these four chapters, let alone everything that precedes it. But Father, that launching pad of seeing a coming day when the perfect priest will come. Father, it's exciting. Father, we do exalt you. We do hold your name high, and we want to honor you in all that we do. Lord, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.